It's great to see you guys. We have another child to our family who came. He came a month early, so uh, you know how I like to do things at the last minute, so totally unprepared to have a child that soon. But um, we're here, and I can tell you one thing for sure is that in planning this message tonight, there's been a crazy assault on me, on friends, and just the coming of tonight. And uh, so I'm kind of mad tonight, so I'm, I'm excited to share with you guys on it. And where this all stems from is I'm entering a series called The Toughest Questions in the Bible. About um, 10 months ago, 11 months ago or so, someone asked me like, hey, um, talking to Brian Orm and hearing him and all these healings, like, so why don't people get healed? Was the first question. And they asked me, I was like, oh, I don't know. Um, and then I like, got really curious. I was like, well, I'm going to go start seeking it out. <clears throat> so I started like, on this little topic search. And then what I found out is that I actually need to go from the very beginning. I need to go from the Gospels. I need to study the life of Jesus, every word of Jesus. I need to go through all of Acts. And I need to find what is the theology of healing and miracles and the supernatural. And so in the process, I spent 10 months. And while I was in there, I was like, well, if I'm going to go through here painfully word by word, I might as well find every instance of every angel every dream, every mention of the Holy Spirit. How about the role of women? How about uh, the miraculous? How about every prophetic word? And so I've, I've chronicled, and I just finished uh, a week ago, um, just this, this in-depth study. And so my teachings from here are going to be from topics that any smarter person would never teach on, that I'm going to try and teach on. And uh, so uh, a few of them, I, I can give you a teaser, is... Um, as, you, as I just mentioned, why do some people get healed and why not? Um, can you lose your salvation? Predestination? The role and significance of women? Role of angels and dreams? Does God send sickness or bad circumstances to teach you? What is the unforgivable sin? And my first message in here was redeeming uh, the story with Peter and Job and how it's caused such crazy bad theology. And so my heart is to actually look at the scripture in such a depth that we can redeem scripture that's been misinterpreted or been given to us in part and cause all sorts of damage and, and stuff. So that cool? So tonight, I'm going to be talking on um, Christians and the demonic. Exciting. Yeah. So good. We're so pumped. So I don't have as many jokes tonight because it's kind of a, a more serious topic, um, but here's what I'm going to cover tonight, um, and this would basically, I would hope, give you the equivalent of what maybe somebody over six months that wanted to study this in depth and be thoroughly equipped would have, and here's why it's important, is that if you don't know the details, you don't know how to fight. I think there's a reason why so many Christians are held down and beat up and, and broken in this area because they just don't even have any idea what they're up against. And so tonight, in about 30 minutes, we're going to cover that. And so here's what we're going to cover is, are there demons? The more significant question, can a believer be in bondage? When you get saved, are you liberated from all oppression? What is demon oppression? And can a believer be demon-possessed? And if we have time, I'll talk about what is a demon, where they come from, and how many are there um, if we have time. So number one, there really are demons. <laughs> I'm just going to say it. There really are demons. The word demon appears in the Bible 82 times. 61 of those times are in the Gospels. It's become popular belief recently that demons are just kind of a mythical, um, it's attributed to a Jewish superstition. 
And there are two extremes I see today in the church. The first extreme is that there are no demons. There is no spiritual, there's no forces, there's no darkness. And then the other opposite extreme is like, Satan is after me, his demons are all over me. Like, you know, they're blaming, you know, Satan on burnt coffee. You know, they're, they're giving him all this credit that he doesn't deserve. And C.S. Lewis said it best. I always feel good when I can quote C.S. Lewis because you kind of feel a little more legitimized in your preaching. Uh, C.S. Lewis <laughs> says this. He says, Two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One error is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and an unhealthy interest in them. The devil is equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or magician with the same delight. More or less, the devil is pleased when you believe he doesn't exist. And the devil is pleased when you think he's causing everything. In both cases, he's getting way more power than he deserves. And in both cases, you're in deception. So we are not skeptics and we're not superstitious. And if you are in either case, you need to like move in the center. Jack Hayford said this about this balance. It says that you can't cast out the flesh and you can't disciple a demon. Let me say that again. You can't cast out the flesh and you can't disciple a demon. Someone who's having demonic visitation, someone who's being tormented, someone who's having crazy pain does not need to be discipled. They do not need to sign up for Christ's life and walk through, you know, five steps. Like, that is like needing of liberation and deliverance. And then someone who, like, can't get up in the morning and they can't show up on time. We don't need to do deliverance in that person. They need to kind of, like, get, like, with it and be discipled, right? So you have both extremes that you need to have in context of where where the demonic ends and you begin. Now, why is there so much mention of demons in the Gospels? 81 times in the Bible, 61 times in the Gospels when Jesus is around. Why? Is that no one had authority over them until Jesus came. The reason that they're mentioned so many times in the Gospels is because until Jesus, there was nobody that had the authority over them. 1 John 3.8 says that Jesus appeared to destroy the works of the devil. Matthew 12.28 says, But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. How can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man? And then he'll plunder his house. Meaning, demons and demonic will stay until there is greater authority over them. The demonic will stay until there's greater authority over them. So what do demons do? They put people in bondage. So the natural question is, can a believer, someone who's professed Jesus Christ as their Savior, can a believer be in bondage? Many theologians say that the moment you have Jesus, it prohibits you from being in bondage. People say, well, you can't have, you know, the demonic and Jesus in the same spot. Because remember, we have Christ in us. So the topic about spiritual forces in us, they say, like, well, the two can't coexist. Well, that, that has a lot of problems with it because God is omnipresent, right? So if God is everywhere, where can the demonic be if they exist? It's kind of a tough place to go. You also forget, like, in the Bible, like, Satan tempted Jesus to his face. So, again, I don't know where you get that theology. But some of it stems back from this passage in John 8, 36. It says, so if the Son makes you free, you'll be free indeed. People hear this to mean that Jesus makes you free, 
meaning salvation, and that you're free indeed, meaning definitively and forevermore. And essentially, they believe that salvation, you are set free from all that oppresses you. And I disagree, and I'll show you why, in the same exact passage, but six verses earlier, to give you context. This is John chapter 8. This is Jesus speaking. As he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. Everyone say, believe in him. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, say, believed in him again. If you continue in my word, then you, are my, then you truly are my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Did you catch that? Jesus is talking to believers, and he's talking about how for them to get set free. Salvation is not what makes you free. Truth is what makes you free. Jesus distinguishes salvation and liberation. Jesus distinguishes salvation from liberation. You can have your soul saved, but your flesh in bondage. The two are independent entities. And Paul, the Apostle Paul, references this exact concept in 1 Corinthians 5.5. He says, This man has been handed over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Meaning that your soul can be saved, but your flesh can be destroyed. Depending on how you live. John 8 again in verse 33 says, And they answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have yet never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? So right here we know Jesus is referring to bondage. And the Jews there respond, We have never been enslaved to anyone. I don't care if you've had the Bible for four seconds. You open anywhere in the Old Testament, you'll find the Jews in bondage to someone, something. <laughs> When they said this, they were currently enslaved to the Romans, so they're not the sharpest people in the world. And belief is one thing, but you can still find yourself in bondage. And Jesus answered them in, chapter, in verse 34. It says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. Again, he's still talking to believers. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you'll be free indeed. Now when we have context... When we look at it thoroughly, when we examine the word, we see Jesus' intent. And what Jesus says here about sin is very important. It's basically saying that everyone who commits sin, remember, still talking to believers, becomes a slave to sin. That he's going into bondage. Now, sin, whether you are a believer or not, puts you in bondage. Let me say that again. Sin, whether you're a believer or not, puts you in bondage. The difference is when you are a believer, bondage becomes your choice. When you are a believer, bondage becomes your choice. When you're not a believer, you kind of don't really have a choice because you haven't been set free. You haven't been liberated. Romans 6.14 says this about us when we become Christians. It says that sin shall not be master over you. That means sin does not have authority to make you its slave. Let me say that again. Romans 6.14, that sin shall not be master over you. That means that sin does not have the authority to make you its slave. Are you with me? But people misinterpret this. What they think is like, if I'm a Christian, it's impossible for me to be a slave to sin because I have Jesus. Now, sin does not have the authority to make you its slave, but you have the authority to make sin your master. It's voluntary then. It becomes your choice. Is that making sense? 
The bottom line, you can be a believer and you can be in bondage. But many people think that salvation gives you that clean slate and all demons and all demonic leave, and that can happen, and I actually believe it does happen sometimes. But if you believe that it's impossible for a Christian uh, to be demonically oppressed, then you have to believe the opposite is true, which is, if you have demonic oppression, then you're not a Christian. But Jesus always distinguishes the two, and it begs the question, how much oppression and bondage can a Christian have? And the answer is, as much as a Christian permits, allows, or invites. How much can Christians put themselves in bondage as much as they invite, allow, or permit? And bondage won't leave you until you want it to leave. As we study the scriptures, you'll see why that's important. So the third question is, what is demonic possession? Demonic possession, this is my definition, is it is the entering controlling and influencing of another human being by a spirit other than God. Let me read that again. It is the entering, controlling, and influencing of another human being by a spirit other than God. People have big issues with, you know, demons entering people. Spooky, you know. Luke chapter 22, verse 3. And Satan entered. <laughs> and Satan entered into Judas, who is called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the twelve. John 10, 1, this is Jesus speaking, says, Truly I say to you, he who does not enter by the door, and Jesus in verse 7 says, I am the door, but into the sheepfold, climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. He says, Anyone who does not enter through the door, that's Jesus, but enters into the fold of sheep. That's you and I. What he's saying is that the thief can get in. He's saying, I am the door. I'm the way. But there's things that can come outside the door. And when they can't come through the door, they're going to get in some other way. He isn't talking about heaven. He isn't talking about the four walls and the steeple of a church. He's talking about entering into the sheep, you and I. The only reason the devil comes is to come and steal to kill and to destroy. Now the good news on this is that if a demon can enter, that means they can be caught and kicked out. It's really important we catch that. If a demon can enter, it means they can be caught and kicked out. So how does Jesus handle demon possession? This is Mark chapter 5. We're going to go into this in detail. You guys ready? You guys doing okay? How are we doing? All right. Mark 5, they went across the lake to the region of Gersernes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. Some translations say unclean, impure, unclean. All of them basically reference uh, the meaning of demon. And this man lived in the tombs or the cemeteries. And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day, the tombs and the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. Remember, demon possession is the entering, controlling, and influencing of a human being by another spirit other than God. Verse 6. When he, that the demon-possessed man, saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In God's name, don't torture me. I find it so funny he says in God's name. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. 
the scripture actually has us turned around. Jesus says, come out of you, you impure spirit. And the man comes and says, who's even possessed, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high? Now, it's really important to notice in here. Again, this is where examination of the scriptures is really key. This is the voice of the demon talking. This is the voice of the demon talking. This isn't the man. How do I know? Because he said, don't torture me. Jesus doesn't torture people. He's not in the business of torturing his children. We throw people in jail for that. He is talking to the demon. Jesus had already said to him, come out of this man, you impure spirit. And so when Jesus said that, uh, he gets a discussion instead. And it's pretty interesting what the demon says, is that the demon first recognized Jesus' position as God and most high. He also recognized that Jesus had authority. He said, what do you want to do with me? And he made a request of Jesus, in God's name, don't torture me. Fascinating. Verse 9. Then Jesus asked him, what is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. Everyone say area. Again, Jesus is not talking to the man. He's talking to the demon in the man. So someone who's demon-possessed, you actually can talk to the entity beyond the man. Jesus distinguishes the two. It says, my name is Legion. Where does the name Legion come from? It's a Roman word, and it has to do with the number of soldiers. 6,826 soldiers, to be exact, is a legion of soldiers. So this person more or less has 6,826 demons. In my terms, he's got some company. He's got a lot of friends. And it had a name. There is power and specificity in the demonic. That's a whole other topic that we might get to later. But Jesus is speaking to a demon that also, did you catch it? One is representing thousands, meaning there is a order, a structure, a chain of command in the demonic. Fascinating. Another message. Maybe not this year, but sometime later. <laughs> Next thing to notice in there, the demon begged not to get sent out of the area. Demonic strongholds are not only within people, they are geographic. He would have said, don't send me out of the man. He's like, I don't care if I'm with the man. Don't send me out of the area. Don't send me out of the area. They didn't ask to remain in the man. They asked to remain in the area. Demonic spirits like to stay where they are already have a stronghold. Let me say that again. Demonic spirits like to stay where they already have a stronghold. That's why they begged, don't send us from the area. Verse 11. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs. Allow us to go into them. And he gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. So he gave permission for them to go into pigs. Another weird thing we can learn from this is that demons can inhabit animals, which explains cats to me in so many realms. <laughs> Verse 14. <laughs> I'm going to pay for that one. Verse 14. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside and that the people went out to see what happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed, everyone say possessed, by the legion of demons sitting there dressed and in his right mind and they were afraid. Don't send us out of the area. The people of the area come 
The demon-possessed man is now free, and they're afraid. You would think they'd be happy. But here we understand that the people of the area preferred a demon-possessed man than a free man. Verse 16, those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. They begged him to leave. You'd think that they would ask Jesus to have a seminar. Start a small group on demon casting out. You know, like that you'd ask, you'd think that they would do something like that. But they wanted him to leave the region because the region was a regional stronghold for the demonic and the demonic wanted to stay that way. So in the presence of the people, they are pleading on the behalf of their own strongholds. Go away, don't do anything more here. Verse 18. And as Jesus was getting into the boat... The man who had been demon-possessed, I'm highlighting that for a reason you'll hear in a second, begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and all the people were made. Decapolis, it is not a city. Deca means 10. Polis means Metropolitan, or it's a term for something like that. Basically, it's a metropolitan area. Bottom line, it's like, go tell 10 cities what I've done for you. So this guy was demon-possessed, right? Three times it mentions him specifically being demon-possessed. You'd think the scripture would be fine with one time, but three times in kind of an unusual prominence, he said demon-possessed. So the, the fourth question tonight is, can a Christian be demon-possessed? Can a Christian be demon-possessed? I think yes. Again, it's, it's a big theological divide. Here's why. Is that let's understand the meaning of word possess in here. In those three contexts where it says demon-possessed, three times. Now, the, the, um, notice in the definition I gave, I said demon-possession is entering, controlling, and influencing of another human being. Notice I didn't say the word own. There's a reason why is in Mark 5 that three references for demon-possessed, the word there is demonai zomai. It literally means demon possession. Deep, I know. But here's what is deep. Is there are two Greek words for possession. There's two Greek words for possession. One means ownership. This is not the word for ownership. This word means to gain mastery over. It means to gain control over, to gain power over. Now, if a man drinks or takes drugs or some other substance, do the drugs or alcohol own the man? No. But they are in him, are they not? Is he under the influence of the drugs and alcohol? Yes. He ends up usually doing something completely out of character that he regrets, and it involves a lampshade typically. Just kidding. But the same thing is with demon possession. Can they be in your system? Yes. Can they have influence over you? Yes. Can they take over you? Yes. Do they make you act totally out of character? Yes. Can they own you? No. When it comes to ownership, the Bible reserves the possession word for a very certain someone who's quite famous in the Bible. Deuteronomy 14.2, for you are holy people to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his own possession. 
Ephesians 1.13, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to to the redemption of God's own possession. Same thought, different words, same truth. 1 Corinthians 3, and you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to you. 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 6.20 and 7.23, the same passages both say that you have been bought with a price. You have been bought with a price. I'm sure God is not going to pay for something and then let himself get ripped off. I mean, he's Jewish after all, right? I mean, he's like really on it. Oh too far, too far. But God is not going to pay. For... That one might, might get me in trouble. God is not, <laughs> pulling it back here, God is not going to pay for something and not get what he paid for. You can't be possessed, you can't be the, a demon's possession because you are God's possession when you are Jesus in him, when you are saved, when you have given your life to him. So can a Christian be owned by a demon? No, we are owned by God. When we accept the blood of Jesus over us, it's said paid in full, no returns, no exchanges, you are his. But can a demon gain control over a Christian? Yes. Can a demon gain power over a Christian? Yes. Can a demon have mastery over a Christian? Yes, if they allow it. Can a demon make a Christian its possession? No. Demon possessed in the Bible does not mean ownership. It means exerting, controlling influence. If you came here, let's just think about this. If you came here tonight and you left a door unlocked or a window cracked and you returned home and found a thief inside, does the thief own your house? No, but he is in your house and he has control over your house until you arrest him and escort him out in handcuffs. And while he's there, he's not going to like tidy things up. No, he's going to steal, he's going to kill, and he's going to destroy. So the question is, is there an area of your life where you feel powerless? Is there an area of your life where you feel that you have no control? Is there an area of your life where you feel you don't have mastery? It might be worth asking the question, is there a demonic influence that has come in and spun me out? Is there a demonic stronghold that has tied me down to this issue? Because you can't get free unless you know you are in bondage. I hope that like this, this makes sense that we, we need to have our eyes open for what's going on in our lives. I don't blame Satan for the traffic on the 50 at 5.30 p.m. But I also know in the middle of the night, when I have crazy thoughts that don't belong in my head, I know that's not me. So I know what to do. How are you guys doing? You okay? You guys want one more? Okay. So this is, I'm going to try and not go as deep because I don't want to, I've become a little bit of like a nerd in like conventional theology about why it doesn't fit, but, but here's, here's a, a highly debated topic in this realm. And it's just, is that what are demons? Where did they come from and how many are there? This is great confusion, and there are um, people who think that they're infinite. There's people that say there's none. Um, there's people who, th- who think that demons don't come to the earth until the tribulation. There's people who think all these different weird things. So um, I'm going to try and give you a little bit of information on here. But first, I want to notice one important scripture. I, I almost didn't include this or write this, but this is fascinating. Luke 14:31. I don't know even know if we have this, but this is Jesus speaking. It says, What king, when he sets out to meet another king, in battle. Everyone say battle. 
will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000. That's awesome. Anybody knows that Jesus is talking about war? Anybody knows that Jesus is talking about, from like, turn the other cheek, give him your cloak. If he runs over your dog, buy him flowers. And Jesus <laughs> is talking about battle. Are you, are you catching this? Why is Jesus using a war illustration? You think like when a king goes to battle, he submits to him and says, I trust you, Jesus. No, he says that you count the cost. You count the strength of your opponent. There is something powerful in counting the cost, knowing the strength of your opponent. That is what tonight is really about. So we have so many Christians in bondage because they're completely blind to what the demonic is, how many there are, where they came from, all those things, the things we're talking about tonight. So let me give you an answer to a lot of this. And I'll try not to go into all the minutiae of it. Um, But if there are any Bible nerds here, I can share with you later. This is Revelation chapter 12, verses 3 through 9. There's a big debate over this passage about whether it is meant um, in the end times or whether it is prophetic about, you know, past times. Um, Verse 3. Then another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his head were seven diadems, and his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them down to earth. And the dragon stood before the woman and was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Now there are four characters in this. We have the great red dragon, we have a host of stars, we have a woman and a child. The great red dragon, anybody know who that is? Satan, yeah. Seven diadems. It means he's got crowns signifying his authority. Seven heads and ten horns just to scare you. A third of the stars. A third of the stars. That is angels. It says that threw down to earth. That's his demons. Jesus addressed demons on earth. Why? It's because he got thrown down to earth. The woman. This is where it diverges. Most theologians think that the woman is Israel. Is God's people. The Catholics believe it's Mary. I think the Catholics got it on this one. I'll tell you why. The birth of a child. They're thinking that's like the church. I think that's Jesus. I don't think there's going to be another child born that's going to rule all the nations. It's clearly Jesus. I don't think Jesus wants to go back to the womb again. There's no, there's no purpose in him doing that again. He's already at the throne of God. Mark 16 tells us, And this birth was 2,000 years ago, so we know that this prophetic dream is actually telling us something in the past. But here's where it confirms it, because it says that the dragon stood before the woman, hoping to devour the child. What happened when Mary and Joseph had Jesus in Bethlehem? Herod did something. Do you remember what? He issued a decree to kill all the males. So here we have John giving a vision, saying the dragon is at the foot of the woman, at the womb, you know, like, sorry, is like ready to like kill the, the child. I got birthing on my mind, sorry. <clears throat> and that he's going to, you know, kill the, the child. And so verse 6 
says, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that there she would be nourished for 1,260 days. Now it gets random and weird. I'm like, I don't know what that means. A lot of scholars say, oh, there's this passage in Daniel talks about seven years because 1,260 days is three and a half years, roughly. That's where it says, well, this is now a different time period. Are you guys okay? Yeah. Okay. So, do you remember what happened immediately after Herod tried to kill all the male children? They exiled to Egypt. The scripture says, until the death of Herod. But there's a reason why most theologians haven't connected that. Why? It's because if you look up on Wikipedia, you see that Herod died um, between 4 BC and 1 BC. What's wrong with that date? Before Christ. Well, you have, a two, you have two problems there. Either Herod was dead before Jesus was there, or we have something wrong with the date. If you also look up on Wikipedia, look up Jesus. Jesus. Um, 7 BC to 2 BC is the birth. <laughs> I might be the only person you've ever known, or maybe anybody ever, to like put these things together. I'm like searching, like, has nobody ever looked at this before? Why are we talking about like the tribulation? Like, this is like history. Like, someone had a rounding error when they got to the birth of Jesus. It's amazing that before Christ, that Jesus was born seven to two years before his own birth. It's amazing. <laughs> so, Herod died 4 BC to 1 BC, somewhere in there. Jesus, 7 BC to 2 BC, difference there, three and a half years. Now, why should this give us amazing confidence? One is because it fits the story. It fits theology. It fits history, right? Look at verse 7. And there was a war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough. And there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, and the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world... He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. So this passage confirms that demons are fallen angels who rebelled with Satan that came down to earth. You guys with me? And it says that they deceived the whole world. If you look at what people think about this passage, they think that the Antichrist is going to come and he's going to deceive all of us and we're all going to go to hell because we got fooled. Deceiving the whole world. It sounds kind of familiar. It kind of sounds like the Garden of Eden, doesn't it? When Adam fell, all of humanity fell. Romans 5.12 says this about the fall. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. The only way to deceive the whole world is to deceive the one person who the whole entire world had come through. We can take pleasure in knowing that we don't need to... Because people look at this passage... And they're so weary of anything spiritual or prophetic or whatever because someone's going to come and deceive the whole world. And so everybody's like worried about being deceived, right? 1 John 4, 1 says, test the spirits to make sure they're from God. I get that. But in here, we are reading a history lesson, not a warning for the future. 
So we can take great confidence knowing what happened already as we address the demonic now is that they got thrown down, they weren't strong enough, and a third of them, a third of the angels, why can we take comfort in that? Is because for every one against you, there's two for you. For every one against you, there's two for you. And they're not infinite. They are finite. It's nice to know that there's not this locust of unending demons coming after you. Actually, when it describes the uh, devil and Satan as devil and Satan, devil, comma, Satan, as a thief, uh, thieves are smart, but they're also pretty lazy. They look for weaknesses. Dante's nodding his head. He deals with these scumbags all the time, right? They're looking for an opening. They're looking for someone who's let their guard down. And I'm going to close with this so we can have the band come up. They are in the business of finding unlocked doors, cracked windows. They are looking for someone who's asleep at the wheel, someone who is not uh, on their guard. So the best way that you can protect yourself is to be aware of what you're up against. You didn't, hopefully you didn't leave your car unlocked out there, right? Hopefully like you parked under like a light, you didn't like park out in the field and like, you know, put a sign on this is like, rob me please. Like you did your, your best to not let yourself be robbed. The best way for you to protect yourself is to make yourself an unattractive target. Because as, as there's finite demons and billions of people, and Sean talked about this a couple weeks ago so well, that they have to decide where they're going to go after, right? There's finite demons, but there's billions of people. That means there is um, a strategy that they have in play. They're, they're going to go after the unlocked doors, the cracked windows. They're going to go after the people that they can get. But as you are a deterrent, they're going to like look and like, uh, maybe I'll go that way. Because they're in the process of getting people bound up. And that's why demons can come in, they can oppress billions of people, but have a finite number. This was so powerful that Sean shared, is that they can come into your life and spin you out. If you're spun out, if you're held down, if you're now um, stuck in whatever sin, they can go on and go oppress somebody else. You might not be inhabited by a force, but you have the effects of it. And you never knew it. You don't have the idea that you are being held down. You have no idea what happened to you, but they moved on. So you might not be inhabited or have something in you, but you might have the lasting effects of someone who bound you up. Is that making sense? Sorry it was a heavy message, but um, I'm just, I'm encouraged that the scriptures are so powerful to illuminate these topics and to remember that 1 John 3, 8, that the works, um, that Jesus came to destroy the works of the enemy. That in you is the agenda to break what the enemy has been doing in this world. Amen.